0: So let's do this. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll jump to it. Sound good? Father God, I, I just want to say thank you so much, uh, God, that we live in an age in which you would give me the great pleasure and honor to come and to speak to your people here in Africa, and it, it's not a trip that was dangerous for me. It's not a trip in which I can't return home to my family, and yet, God, throughout the ages, you called men to do just that to cross oceans with their coffins to cross oceans with their babies and father i want to say to you if that would be the cost then you would still be worthy of it but i want to say thank you god that in this age and this time despite the evils we read about on read about in the internet and on the newspapers and the evils we hear about in our city god there, there's a great grace that has befallen our generation that the gospel has never been so mobile as it is now. In the history of the world, this moment, Paul wishes he had the technologies we do. Paul wishes he had the opportunity we do to reach people in the farthest corners of the globe. And So, Father, we don't, we don't want to look past that. And so I want to say thank you, God, that you've given me the humble opportunity to speak to those of my family that are here, family that I could not have even imagined meeting even 100 years ago, and yet we can work together for your namesake to be renowned among all peoples and all tribes and all tongues, and Father, we want to say to you to collectively as a people that you are worthy of all tribes and all tongues and all nations and all peoples. And Father, if you would give us the grace to work together towards this, God, it would be a worthy thing to give our entire lives to. And so, Father, we love you, and I pray that you would give insight to us, your people, to be a part of your mystery, to redeem for yourself a people that looks like nothing else you could find in any other organization or city or state in the world because of its multiplicity of cultures and expressions of love for you, Father, we love you and we pray for your presence right now in Jesus' name, Amen. So let let me start with two texts um, because I, I think there is a a way to approach this topic that is profoundly unbiblical. I, it sounds like such a biblical topic to reach unreached peoples that surely it's always biblical no matter how you approach it, and yet I think there's some ways that we can approach it incorrectly. There is, a, there is a humanism that is moving through the nations in our time like none other that has not incorrectly but disproportionately elevated the value of man so very, very high that it would seem... It would seem like a no-brainer that we should reach all peoples because people are worth so much. And yet there's, there's some truth to that, but it's just the kernel of truth. There's a, broader, there's, a broader reach, there's a broader reason to reach all nations that goes well beyond the fact that men and women are worth it. There is. And I've alluded to it already in our prayer, but I want to read the text that drives us to this point. The very reason that we as God's church reach towards all nations People, all tongues, all tribes, all nations, these people that we call unreached, these people who have no access to the gospel, these people who have no local church expression that can finish the task of reaching its people without. There's a reason that we do this that's actually beyond just a benevolent sentimentality. Because I'm telling you, if, if, if you come to this room and think, I'm going to reach all people because I just love people so much, we won't pay the cost. Because the people among the nations are just unlovable as the people in your city. They are. The the people among the nations don't carry in them a sense of goodness that's going to cause you to fall in love with them in such a way that you would endure the suffering that it would take to reach them. So there has to be a greater cause. There has to be a greater reason. There has to be a greater There has to be a greater pull and compulsion for us to go to all nations. So I want to read it from you from the text. We actually alluded to it in the worship songs this morning. The Apostle John, he has this moment where the Holy Spirit shows him some things. Some things that have changed the course of churches forever. He he shows us this in his writings from Revelation 5-6. Let me read it to you. Says in between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw lamb standing as though he were slain, and with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads upon myriads, They said this, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. This text is really profound because it makes a really, really bold statement. It says that there are people all around the world that are of a different breed and of a different tribe and of different blood and of different nations. And then it says this, that there's... The God-man Jesus, who was not just a king, not just a lion, but he was a lamb, and and he spilt his blood, and when he did it, he didn't just do it benevolently, but he did it as a purchase. That's different. Jesus actually purchased with his blood people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. This is a profound reality because for us, this means now, whatever we see in our mission, And however far we think it extends actually shows how much we think his blood is worth. That messes me up. Because what this text makes me grip with is the fact that Jesus is worth more than Americans. And for Jesus to have claimed my whole nation, if he were to claim 100% of the 300 plus million people in America alive today, and if he were to perpetually save every American alive today, then it would be still an insufficient payment for his blood. And I just want to submit that to you. Is is Jesus worth more than your tribe? Is he worth more than your nation? Is his blood worth more than your tongue? Because this text says that he is. If we have a mission that is smaller than the nations, if we have a mission, this is this is nuts. If we actually have a mission in our local church that is smaller than every single tribe in the history of mankind praising God around this throne this day, then what we are saying is, Jesus, you got enough. Paid in full, man. And so this is the responsibility of every church who reads this text and says, I'm going to be gathered around this throne. And around this throne, I promise you, one day if you're around this throne, you will be saying amen to that prayer. Because this is not a promise. This isn't an aspiration. This isn't benevolence. This is a look into the future. When you see the Lamb of God who is now a reigning king, you're going to say, Jesus, you are worth more than I thought you were worth. And so there's something that drives us more than just a benevolence towards hurting people around the world. Yeah, they're hurting, and they are made in the image and likeness of God, and that is a profound thing, but it is not enough to drive a people to suffering on behalf of another people. It's just not enough. Because one day you're going to get there, and they're just as mean as the people in your city. Sure, there'll be some nice ones, but there'll be some mean ones. Sure, there'll be some kind ones and some people of peace there, but there'll also be some people of war. And why do we stay? And why do we send brothers and sisters to go live among them, some of which will actually die before seeing any fruit? Why? Because Jesus is worthy. He's, worth, he's worthy of the Libyans. Did you know that? Yes. He's worthy of the 300 or so unreached people that are still in the heart of Brazil, surrounded by Christians. And you should think, well, God's got enough there. He's got millions in Brazil, but there's still some tribes that Jesus bought, and he shall get what he paid for because he's worthy. That's one text. Second text that drives us to compulsion. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, peace be with you right before he left. He said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. So there's a profound reality captured in that text, and I won't spend time preaching and teaching on it because you'd do a far better job than I would of it. But the simple mind that I have says this, that Jesus, when he When he purchases a person, he also sets them on a task. And so my belief here is that these people, upon receiving the Holy Spirit and following Jesus, they're going to follow him in the way that God sent Jesus. So in this way I say this, God sent Jesus not for the people of Israel, but to whom did God send Jesus? For not just lambs from the people of God, known as Israel, but for lambs that were not yet part of the fold. Jesus was not just sent for the people that were already presently looking to Yahweh. God sent Jesus for people out there, and it freaked people out, even in Jesus' time. And I'm just telling you, now when born again, this is exactly who God has purchased in your church. If there's someone sitting in your pews or your folding chairs, as it is in my context... Or under a tree as it was in Jesus' context. If there are people sitting there and they have the Holy Spirit and they are following the Lord of glory, he is going to other sheep, not of this fold. That's where he's going. And if we are to call our people to follow Jesus, we are calling them to follow him to the ends of the earth. And this is... This text changes the way we begin to think about church because this means that if you pastor, and I I don't want to say this too harshly, but if you pastor are not seeing people from your local body going to unreached peoples, you may just be the one preventing them because God is calling them. Do You follow me on this? We are making disciples of people who are disciples of Christ. If we're good under-shepherds, pointing them to the great shepherd, I know where he's headed. The text tells me where he's headed. I can tell you right now that Jesus, if my people in Austin, Texas, are going to follow Jesus, he's not just sitting in our living rooms. He's not just going into the hard parts of our city. He's actually going to people who have no access to the gospel because his blood has required their presence in the throne room. And so if I'm I'm an under-shepherd and they're not going, then I'm stopping them because God's Spirit is calling them. I, I can't read this text any differently, and so it's just changed me. And so for me, when we sit here in Texas and we have, we have, a, we have a, a nice big church with nice salaries and, and everyone would applaud us and say, you're doing a great job, you planted a church, it's got lots of people, great job. And yet, according to the economy of God, if I'm just counting the number of people in my seats and not the number of people who are sent, then I don't have God's economy in my church. And that seems it ends, right? Because my ego says more people sitting in my chairs makes me a better man. God's economy says I must become less and he must become greater. These texts should drive us to the ends of the earth. So let me give you some practicals now that I'm done preaching. All right. Based on these two verses, um, I just want to give you an opportunity to allow people to respond to the Holy Spirit. This is the beauty of it. We don't have to create we don't have to create the inertia for people to want to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation. We just have to preach the text and then not prohibit them. I think that's the reality. And there's, there's, there's some real active ways we can prohibit, and I don't really think any of you would be accused of that. But there's some passive ways we prohibit, isn't there? So these should alleviate the, at least the passive, if not the active. Okay, first, church planting among the unreached means you provide... Leadership in prayer. If we're not regularly asking our people to join with us in prayer for those people, not these people. For people without access to the gospel, not just people who are rejecting the gospel around us. If we're not actively praying, then we're not connecting them, to the, we're not connecting them rightly in the way that they might be able to hear the heart of God in prayer. Because you guys know this is the same with me. Prayer is not about... It's not about getting God to align with my will. It's about me getting connected to God in such a way that I start aligning to His. And so as we lead our people in our churches, if we're not actively praying, if, if, if in our prayers it's, it's 100 prayers for us and one prayer for them, we're, we're not providing pathways to reach the unreached. We're actually prohibiting them. They'll read value in it. They will. If we're not praying for if we're not praying for these unreached places in Africa that are close to get to, and if you're not from Africa praying for the millions upon millions of people who are in the Arab bloc that have no access to the gospel, none, none, not just, a, not just a, a messed up gospel. They have no access to any kind of proclamation of Jesus in these windows. There has never in the history of the world been one solitary church among the Emirati people in the United Arab Emirates. Not one. Not one. Millions upon millions upon millions in a kingdom that's been established for thousands of years. Not one. And I read the heart of God and I say, but God, you you bought them. And you're worthy for them to sing in their tongue around your throne room. And I know that, God, if you're sending my people the way that the Father sent you, and I know that you are, then, God, you're calling them to people just like that, and then inviting people in to pray for them. And you just see what God doesn't do. He will begin to send them just as the Father sent him, just as the Father, through Jesus, sent you to where you are. This is profound. So we don't want to prohibit them, but we want to rather provide them with leadership in prayer. Second and they're all going to start with provide, because I heard that that's a thing to do that. So then you need to provide an ongoing theological motive. Again, just in the same way we started this session, our people, if they're following Jesus, we're teaching them to be people of the book. That they're not following your words, I pray, but they're following God's word. So it wouldn't take much exegesis it wouldn't take, take much preaching in order to find God's heart for the nations. It wouldn't take much searching to be able to find a text in which you could provide theological foundation for people to go to the nations. And yet, in so many churches across the world, it's a byline, it's a Sunday, it's Mission Sunday. But if you read this text... From creation to revelation, the story is God redeeming for himself a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. You read it in Genesis when he gives the original mandate to Adam and Eve to say, listen, I want you to go throughout the whole earth. You, my image bearers, my, the people who represent my rule and reign, my vice regents of my kingdom, and you who have my likeness, you're actually my son and my daughter. Those who look like the king now go act like the king and go propagate the kingdom among the whole world and make it flourish, subdue it, have dominion over it so that the kingdom of God and the people of God flourish in a dry land. That's, that's the story in Genesis. We pick up in Abraham where the Great Commission, we hear it for the first time in Genesis 12, too, when he says to Abraham, listen, I'm going to, he promises him all these awesome things that we like as preachers. He's going to give you a great name. That's awesome. I'm going to make a people that are going to be more numerous than the stars and in the sand. Then he says this thing at the end. Here's the reason I will do anything at all through you, Abraham, so that all the nations through you will be blessed. You see that? It sounds eerily similar to the last thing Jesus says. Go therefore and make, nation, make disciples of all nations. Baptize him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach him to obey all that I've commanded and lo, I'll be with you until the end of the age. This sounds eerily similar to what he's been saying the whole time. That there is a people of God who are not supposed to be just the receivers of the grace of God, but the conduits of the grace of God to the entire planet. The whole place is supposed to flourish according to the will of God. Every people are supposed to flourish according to the will of God. Every people are supposed to be redeemed according to the will of God. In the texts, they all say it. They all point to it. Because Christ, the centerpiece of all history, is redeeming for Himself a people. And He describes who these people are over over and over and over and over again. The level of diversity God wants... Is universal at his throne room I have no idea how that place is gonna work I have no idea what language the songs will be in or if they'll be in a multitude but I know that it looks like a place I've never seen and we work to that end so you have to give them a theological reason to go and not just sentimentality not just we ought to duty is not enough sentimentality is not enough. God's word and God's worth is enough to send us to all nations. Provide them that. Thirdly, provide just strategic short-term opportunities. So we're, we're driving to more, more practical. I've, I've really never met anyone who's been called long-term who hasn't gone short-term. It may be different. You may know this guy who's like, man, he just picked up one day and, and, and he moved to Thailand I, and he just planted a church among some among the people of outside of Laos. I, he just did it. In most cases, there has been an opportunity for someone to go see something, and God stirs the soul. God stirs it. God moves the soul. When you see the need, we have compassion on them because we're, we're in the image of God, and we're like Jesus, and when he saw need, he had compassion, and he moved to it. And as we give people this, this opportunity to see things, even if it's you load people up in a truck, or you get people on a train, this is not a waste of money, this is not a waste of money, this is not a waste of time, it's not, there's been some who've said that it's a waste of time, you know, you could just send money and the local church there can handle it, Um, that doesn't work in places where there's no local church, see the problem? And so we have to go, we have to capture a vision. I mean, the churches you planted, you went there first, I hope. Prayed over the city, fell in love with the city, began to know the people, began to care about the people, began to see their needs, and then your heart broke because it's formed in the image of Christ for the people. And so you move towards them in compassion. Give your, don't hinder the people of God who have been sent by the Holy Spirit. Expose them to this great need expose them to this great opportunity to make much of Jesus. And so provide the way. Number four, provide clear pathways for going. One of the things that I love about Acts 29 that it's done is at least in the U.S., it was really one of the very first opportunities that I felt in a local church context for people to regularly talk about church planting. It wasn't until Acts 29, at least my church, there was a way that someone could say, hey, church planting's a thing. If you're interested, raise your hand. I, it was, in my context, that was, was the very first kinds of church I'd ever been a part of where that was a thing, where there was an opportunity for me to raise my hand and say, okay, I can take one step. In most other places I'd been, if I wanted to take a step to plant another church, I was almost an adversary to the pastor. And I can just tell you, most people coming out of most churches, at least in my context, They feel like they're leaving their church, not being sent by their church in order to go among the unreached. Well, that's an indictment. Because I'll tell you right now, as Jesus' disciples scattered among the world, they didn't feel like they were leaving the mission of God, they felt like they were going to complete it. So ought our people. And so providing pathways is part of us not hindering them. We don't, want, we don't want to have kind of, as I would call it, we don't want to have a hyper-Calvinistic version of sending, which says, if you're really called to go, you'll figure it out. You know what I mean? The chosen will figure out how to go. What we want to be is, we want to be, we want to be optimistic that God is calling our people. And you may be thinking in your head, I don't need a pathway. There's, there's nobody that wants to go. The story of my church was... Which it, it shattered me in shame. This one I, I can remember. It was this, it was a Sunday, maybe six years ago. Now we just said, Lord, we feel like God's calling some people from our church to go. And so we thought, God, we're gonna we're just gonna we're just gonna believe in faith. And so we set up 50 chairs in the cafeteria. We meet in the school and down in the cafeteria we set up 50 chairs and we said it wasn't very compelling. We just said, Hey. We've been talking about the nations for a while, and 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 maybe some of you want to go if you're interested. We have some chairs and some donuts downstairs. Let's talk about the nations. And I remember standing down there thinking, man, if like, if like only four people show up, I'm going to be freaked out. But man, man, Lord, maybe fill up half these chairs. And that night, 600 people showed up. And I don't, I don't, I don't say that by way of like, oh, this is awesome. I'm telling we. We didn't do that. We didn't preach that. We didn't produce that. That was literally, hey, um, we're just going to see if maybe the Lord is calling some people. And then we were astounded at how much we had been resisting God's call on their lives. That's what I felt that night. I thought, oh, God, forgive me. How many have been called that I might have just tamped down their passion by not giving them a pathway? And so never again. Never again. Never again will they not know on a regular basis if God is even starting a little bit to make you think nations, a little bit to think unreached peoples, that they won't know exactly where to go. So I just, I want to encourage you, have a pathway for them. Just have a pathway for someone to say, listen, I don't know, but maybe give an opportunity for them just to raise their hand and start a conversation with you. Those people who say, "Yet yeah, maybe, and now I'm, I'm, I'm a little more convinced, give some opportunity for them to be assessed. Here's the beauty. You already know how to train people to go to the nations. So many of us are worried about this. There, there, are, there are in-depth and advanced training opportunities out there, and I'm going to talk about partnerships in a minute because they're very important, but the essential stuff is contained in the pastoral epistles and throughout the rest of the New Testament. I mean, if you look through the scriptures and they start talking about who is supposed to go plant churches, it's in the pastoral epistles. And primarily, it's men who can preach and teach, and then men and women who have profound character and belief in God. That's it. That, that, that's, that's most of the training. And I can tell you, if sending people to the nations takes three years, most of it is that. Men and women of profound character and trust in Jesus Christ— along with some called elders who are able to preach and teach the word of God. This is elders and deacons 101. Those are the people God's calling to your, to the nations. In most contexts, and in mine included, we tell people all the time, listen, what God's calling to you to here is most of the skills you'll need there. Most of the skills. You may need to learn a new language. You may need to learn new customs. I don't want to make this small. You may need to to learn how to do cross-cultural ministry. There are some things you need to learn, but I'm I'm reading the New Testament. And from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 28, most of what I see is Holy Spirit, church-trained people responding to God's call to go, and God bears fruit. I think there's a lot of things we can add that are good, but what's necessary, you have. If we are teaching our congregations to be people on purpose and people on mission for God. So these pathways, we can get more in depth. We're going to have some Q&A time at the end. If you want to know more what a pathway would look like, then I'd love to discuss it. But it really is as simple as giving people the opportunity to raise their hand and say, I think God's stirring in my soul. And then giving people the opportunity to say, would you begin to look deep into my character and look deep into my doctrine and to begin to help me understand what it would look like to speak the gospel to a new people. I just, I want to commend to you. You you can do that. That DNA is in every local church God has ever birthed. It's there. Number five. We want to provide partnerships. This is really important. I want you to hear this. If you're going to reach the unreached, it's not going to be reached by one person trying to reach them purposeful alliteration. If we're going to reach the unreached, it's going to take God's big C church, oftentimes not just one little C church. Now, every little C church needs to be obedient in order for the big C church to do it, but it's going to take a, it's going to take a brotherhood, it's going to take a fellowship, it's going to take a partnership, it's going to take a network of people trying to reach and I could say this, this is, this is in the text. We see it over and over and over again. Even from the very beginning of Acts, you see the church in Jerusalem scatters and then the very next chapter, you've got Antioch and Jerusalem needing to participate to reach the unreached peoples in their, in their towns. And then you see Paul over and over again, almost in every letter in the New Testament, he talks about partnering with other churches. He talks about partnering with other believers. Because to reach the unreached is a task where God's church shines in its unity. And I think it's profound because I don't think we can actually accomplish what God called us to do without it. And I think he did that intentionally. There's churches all over the world that seem so magnificent, so large, so enormous. And I can tell you, even the biggest and best and most equipped and most well-funded church in the whole world We'll never reach the Emiratis alone. They won't do it. What it's going to take is every church, and then within every church, some of those churches particularly called to those people, working together for those people, for the name of Christ, so that that tribe will be called in and heralding the name of Jesus. And I think God does this on purpose because He doesn't like it when we get the credit for stuff. He's very jealous for His glory. And so He is he has presented to the church such a such an onerous vision for the world that no local church can do it alone, and he likes it that way so that he alone gets the glory. Number six, we want to provide platform for story. People are compelled by story, and just as we've been doing here at this conference, you've probably been motivated to hear the stories of people that say, man, this is someone who's Who's, this is what God's doing in that world. And that begins through narrative to stir the human heart to say, I want to join a story. And that's why most of the, most of the text, most of the biblical text is story, because we're a people that God is called to join in God's story. And so when we start telling stories of people reaching the nations, particularly when they remember that guy that used to sit next to them is now doing that thing over there, they begin to stir. They begin to get, they get, they get this holy discontent that maybe God is calling me. Out. That's a good thing. And so, in our ways of just just removing our passive boundaries that we put up into people, let me just remind you you've you've got to lead out in a prayer for the nations. Make them pray. You've got to give them a theological vision. You must give them a theological. We don't want them to go out as humanitarians. They're just as powerless as any other humanitarian organization in the world. There's no hope in just giving people bread. The bread of life in Jesus Christ is their only hope, and with him all these other needs shall be met. And so we have to give them a, theolo- a robust theological reason for reaching the nations. And then beyond that, we have to give them, a, we have to give them pathways for going. Not only the pathways for going, but we have, to get, we have to give them partnerships for going, And then we have to give them platforms for telling stories. We have to tell the stories of people going. Because these heroes are who your people emulate. And if the hero of the story is the guy behind the mic, well, you only need one of those in your church, or two, or five, or maybe even ten. But if there's going to be workers all over the unreached peoples of the world, they're going to have to see the normal story of a Christian. You guys follow? The normal story of a Christian as someone living radically on mission for God and going wherever he calls them. Scattering among the nations should be the normal story, and you have to tell it. And we can't just tell the story of Paul over and over again. You've got to tell the story of the guy that used to sit right here so that they can see that's not just Paul's story. That, that's, that's maybe mine. And let me just, just kind of break the ice a little bit Sending the guy that's not that great is actually a really great story. Because most people don't feel that great. And the ones that feel great are kind of messed up with pride. You know what I'm saying? So telling the story of the guy that they used to remember and they're like, that guy's reaching the nations? Oh man, that must be the Holy Spirit of God and we're not different so maybe I can go. And some of our stories, I don't know if this word works here in South Africa, but some of our biggest knuckleheads have gone to the nations. You guys, knucklehead, is that, is that a thing here? Biggest knuckleheads on the planet that I'm like, I didn't think the guy could tie his shoe, much less plant a church among, among Chinese way people. You know what that ends up doing? That makes Jesus look marvelous. And that makes people, ordinary people, Just like you see in Acts, ordinary, uneducated people begin to go to the world and say, we can't help but speak about what we have seen and heard. And then people come to Christ. Man, there's nothing like it. You need to provide care for those who have gone. Church, um, this is to our shame. Uh, Pastors, specifically, you and me on the same page here, out of sight, out of mind is a thing we do. When our sheep are outside of the walls of our church, we have a tendency to say, well, good luck to you, kid. I'll tell your story, but we're not going to do much for you. Here's the reality. Church planning among the unreached means this. There is no church to care for them. So they're still part of yours. They just live somewhere else. So it's not just a part of your system for sending. It's not just part of of your your ability to keep people on the field. It's not just a thing that you ought to think about as probably a good part of the process. It is a biblical responsibility of an under-shepherd to shepherd the flock of God until the day in which there is a local church to love them and to be their shepherd. I need a shepherd. That's why we have a plurality of elders at my church. And when I send someone into the nations, they need shepherds. And when you send them to an unreached people group, the math bears out that they don't have one unless it's you and your team. And so, can I just tell you the Christian mortality rate, and I'm not speaking of physical mortality, I'm talking about the devastating spiritual mortality among missionaries is so high it shames us. The divorce rate. It's so high, it shames us among people working among unreached. The number of people who go cold in their faith, it shames us. And I'm using shame in a gospel-centered way. It's in a way that says, God, I acknowledge we were wrong. Cover that sin, but correct us in your righteousness, God. Church, we must provide care for those who go. We must. It's not, let, let me hear this. Partnerships with organizations are good for some things. They're not good for taking the role of eldership. It's not what they do. If we partner with great organizations, there's great organizations like Frontiers. They're everywhere. I love this organization, and they're so good for training. They're so good for strategy. They're so good for tactics. They're not the church of God. It's not what they are. That's my responsibility and my elders' responsibility to love those people. That's our responsibility to care for their doctrine, to make sure they're wa- watching their life and doctrine while on the field. That's my job. Whom else will do it? It's not a partner organization, and it's not a local people who haven't been born again. They're still part of our church. And If I had a long time to talk about this, I would stay there because it's, it's a devastating, devastating reality that's on us. Lastly, This is last. We need to provide accountability for the outcomes. I mentioned this briefly at the very beginning. A church that sends is a church that actually starts counting sending as success and not sending as failure. I don't care what size your church is. Everybody counts the number of people who show up. Am I wrong? Some of you do it formally. Some of you just kind of do it from the stage, but you tell people not to count because we don't really care, but you're counting because you feel you're countenance go down when there's more empty seats and your countenance go up when there's more full seats we don't like to count things like budget but we do we don't like to count things like things in i'm telling you actually all those countings are good they're just incomplete because in god's economy the number of people who go i think reveals the reality of our faithfulness to this word Could you imagine if Paul only counted the number of people who came to his churches? Could you imagine if the first church in Jerusalem only counted the number of people who showed up to their meetings? It's my suspicion that we're not sitting here because I don't see any Hebrews, or at least I can't tell if you are one. Sorry. You don't look like one. It jumped cultures because... They counted sending as success. And if we don't, you're, you're going to get what you aim for. You are. And if we aim for growing the room and not growing the force out there, if our prayers don't look like Jesus that say, hey, take a line and look at the world. The world is not a barren harvest field with, with microscopic bits of fruit left to yield it is ripe for harvest, said our king. That's what he said. And then his response to that is, so we need more workers. From the very get-go, what Jesus is counting on increasing is not the number of people on the hillside listening to his teaching. He used to run them off pretty frequently. You guys remember that? People would come up and they're like, we got a, lot, we got a good church going here. So he pulls the eat my flesh and drink my blood bit freaked everyone out and they took off. And he turns to the 12 left and instead of saying, well, hold on, let me explain what I meant. He says, you two want to bounce? Feel free. But what Jesus did ask for more of from the very get-go was workers. And if we're speaking the words of Christ, so are we. Not just workers here, but out there in the harvest. And can I just tell you the harvest, the harvest in this thing we call the 1040 window where there's billions of people without any access to the gospel. There's about two billion people that there is no hope for them to come to Christ, and they're going to die, and they're going to perish right now. I'm not talking about resistant to the gospel, as many of our people are. I'm talking no hope, and their daughters look like yours, and their sons look like yours. And they have, they have not a hope in the world. Not, a, not the kind of hope that we hope for with our congregation where maybe their heart will melt. That's the hope I have for Texans. But I'm talking no hope like there's no hope. There's no gospel. There's no heart to melt to because there's no preaching so they cannot hear, so they cannot be saved kind of no hope. That must move us. And so we need, if we're going to accomplish Harvesters in that field, then we have to start saying, Oh God, we are failing if there's not people coming out of our seats to go there. We should be the kind of pastors who, at the end of the day, say, God, if there's no one else leaving for my church, I'm going because this is not okay. If they won't leave, I'm going because someone from this spot got called. That's having the heart of the Savior who says, I'm going to continue to leave people to deal with the people who have been saved because I can't live with the fact that there's people who have no hope and no access to the gospel. So, let me do this. Um, I, I have no idea what our, t- I didn't look at what time we are, so I have no idea how much longer we have. Um, so, I guess whatever is good to us in the Holy Spirit is how long we'll go, right? They'll have to come kick us out. Um, so we have home field advantage, so they got to come in here. So let me just do this. Let me open it up for um, um, any questions that you guys have. If you want me to reiterate um, any of the pieces or if you have just some practical questions or if you want to hear our story at our church, then happy to tell any of those things. So any questions? I hope. I love the awkward silence part. So, Yes, ma'am. That's good. So the question was, let's say God calls me to a people, what next? How do I, how do I get there or I arrive there and now what do I do? Uh, it's it's a, a really great question. And, and I would say first this is um, there, there's, there's some prerequisites to, to being there um, that I think are really important. Number one, be sent by your church. Make them send you. Uh, go to your pastor and say, I see this in the text. God's calling me. Your job is to help me. And it's true. Now, their job to help you may be saying, I look at your character and I look at your doctrine. You shouldn't go. You wouldn't be helping. You'd be hurting. That's fair, but at least they've helped you at that point. But if they look at you and say, okay, say, so you come to them and say, you need to send me. That means you need to review me. You need to look at my character. You need to see. I need, I need the local church to confirm this calling on me because if God's not calling me, I don't want to go. And you shouldn't. Just the way Moses said, God, if you're not going, I'm not we're not going. So you need them to send you, and then ask, your, ask, ask the local congregation, would you help me find partners who are working in the area? If you don't already have those connections, you just beg, help, help me find partners in the area. To go alone is rare and needed, but it's not necessary. So There will be cases where there's no one working among these people. Um, but in most cases, God has someone there who's working, and, and ask your local church, research on the internet, whatever you can do, find some partners, some trusted partners that you can work with in that area. Now, once you get there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different methodologies, so we actually um, are praying about and thinking through, like, different pipelines for going. Um, and So Hope for Africa is actually working on this, so I would encourage you to speak with them. Um, particularly if you're in this context, they, they are thinking about these issues all the time. Um, but upon arriving, it's always good to have a, uh, you're, have, you're there for a mission, you have to have a way in. And so we, we kind of pray through four different ways. Start a business or be a part of business. There, it's a, it's, a, it's a real practical way to be present and in many people groups left on the planet without a reason to be there, you're gonna create more suspicion than you are trust. So business is a good way in. Then we talk about church planting. Which could also leverage business, but church planting, if you're going to church plant, you're going as an evangelist or you go as a mercy or or, or in a justice cause, which is probably one of the most predominant ones used today. Um, I think it needs some help because it has to lead to church planting and sometimes doesn't, Um, but looking for a platform to go. And then once you're going there, there's a number of methodologies that are really good. I would encourage you to research um, church planting methodologies. there's a number of really practical steps. There's, you know, stuff out there like disciple-making movement stuff um, that a guy named Garrison and Watson and these guys have put together. Um, but in this local context, I'd actually point you over here to our brothers from Hope for Africa because they might have more immediate practicals for you. If, if if God's calling you, that that would be awesome. Go talk to them, and I think you would be awesome to go. Hey, brother. Quick summary of what the brother said, uh, was the nations have come to you in most places, especially in the context I've been seeing here as the nations and tribes are coming to you. So God has kind of given us, uh, he's made it a bit easier on us, right? He's, he's given us a, a real easy way to do it where we're, we're actually being actively disobedient if we're at least not doing it near us. Um, and so short-term trips can be quite easy because they can be across the street in some places You know where the unreached peoples are from Pakistan or uh, there's just a number of people that are going to be from tribes that are not yet reached and places where the gospel needs to move. And a good way to develop the heart for your people, as his brother pointed out, is just connect with the people there. Connect with people from those nations in your nation and you'll actually see people begin to say, I I just love these people and I want to go. One of the most practical ways to do that is create um, language partners. Many of these people are trying to learn your language. And um, what's helpful is you'll begin to see people in your church start learning their language. And now the barriers for them going are just, just, just lowering. And so the fear of, of leaving is lowered and they can embrace the calling easier. These are, yeah, this is really good. Especially if you live near a university. They're, it's usually rife with international students. So pursue them. Not wait for them, but actually go after the nations by going after the internationals in your community. Because some of you are actually... Not from here. Uh, if you can just remember moving to a new town, how receptive you were to anybody wanting to be your friend. Moving to a new country is the same way. And so they're going to be receptive to you, even if they hate your gospel in the moment. Um, because human nature is to need, need community. It's good. Any other questions, comments? Yeah, that's a great question. The question is... is a, local church involvement before you're sent? Do you, do you need to go through eldership? Do you need to be an elder before you're sent? And it really depends on the calling. So uh, my answer is, um, in most cases, no. In most cases, no. Uh, in the case that you're being sent as an evangelist, um, God is, let me, let me make it, you know, God is calling all sorts of people the nations. And many of them are evangelists who will, if you've ever met an evangelist, some of them actually make really bad elders. They're too busy. They're too busy. They, they, they don't like to shepherd the flock of God. They like lost people. And so calling them an elder is actually like they don't want to do it. They want to be with lost people and not, not, not with sheep. And so um, many of these evangelists are going to get called to the nations. And so we do want to check their character. And what we, what we want to do is at least at the level of the character of a deacon and the character of an elder, we want, we want to make sure that men and women have the character that we see there. Um, so we want, to, we want them to pursue some level of maturation in that, and we want to make sure that their doctrine is good, so that they're not spreading false gospel. Uh, again, th- one of the biggest problems in uh, Reaching the Unreached right now is they're becoming inoculated to the true gospel, because they've had something really, really close to our strain of truth that it actually inoculates them from the real thing. And, and many of you know what I'm talking about even here in South Africa. And so it's important that we send DNA we actually want to replicate. So... Do you have to be an elder? No, but affirmed by elders in the fact that them saying you're not disqualified, you may not be yet qualified or not even called to the role of elder, but you have the character of a church leader. You have the character of someone we would want to replicate is really, really important. And so for us, we'll send long-term missionaries that are 24, and some of these guys, they're not elders, but they're not disqualified, they're just not qualified yet. There's kind of three things. There's disqualified, qualified, and then there's just unqualified. As most, as most young people are, they haven't got enough life on them to be able to say they're temperate, but they're still in the normal common range for a saved person at about that age. And so we're not looking at them to discipline them. We're ready for them to, to move on. So I would say in many cases you don't have to be an elder, but you want to be affirmed by your eldership to have reproducible character and reproducible doctrine where, where you go. Yes, brother. Yeah. Yeah, George, this is a good, his question was, is, is there a book or anything I could pa- pass you to in order to um, kind of pray about what kind of models and methodologies that we would use? And the reality is, is unre- yeah, successful ones particularly. Yes, yeah, we don't want to give you the bad ones. Well, uh, the, the answer is yes. And there's actually, in this time in history, there's, there's so many smart people out there and so many good resources um, I would point to you to uh, uh, at least the ones that I'm using from the U.S. side. So mine are going to be really skewed to U.S. writers because it's my context. Um, so I, I don't want to eliminate international writings that have probably been, uh, you know, just as good or better over the last couple of decades. It's just not my wheelhouse. So l- just excuse me for being uh, not well-read enough to to point to all of this. There's been a few. The case study methodology actually was picked up by a guy named David Garrison. He wrote a book called Church Planning Movements, and he actually did a case study of um, – uh, movements that have happened throughout history where a million plus people from one particular place have come to Christ in, I think, a 10-year span. And so it's pretty selective of massive success. Um, one of the hardest things about case studies is typically they only study one generation. So we don't know what they've produced a couple of generations down. So I, I don't want to carte blanche ever say this This is a methodology that works and uh, because it's really difficult to tell. What, what I can say is there's some good people who are starting to aggregate good resources so I would look to Hope for Africa again if you're in this context they're going to have some good resources um, and then the Gospel Coalition actually um, if you guys heard of a Gospel Coalition website they've actually pulled, they've pulled in Desiring God International which was Dr. John Piper's um, has, has been a really uh, I think a thought leader in global missions and they spent a lot of their resource trying to get some of this good resource well that's now under the bridge of um, Gospel Coalition if you didn't know where Desiring God International went that's where it is now um, and they have, I think, some of the best case studies and some of the best writings, and it's accessible to everybody on the internet. Um, and there's a number of other um, things out there, but um, I would start with that one, and then maybe offline I can, you know, find some more pointed resources for you. Yes, brother. Uh, I, this might, I have to, I'm getting this symbol, so. Wonderful. Okay, so I'll stick up here, and if you have more questions, then uh, I don't like his coffee or his tea, so I'll be up here. I'm joking. All right, thank you guys for your time.